This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 332nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a Hollywood A-lister whose work on the stage and screens big and small has won her widespread acclaim, a loyal fan base, and acknowledgement ranging from a 2013 spot on People's List of the 100 Most Beautiful People in the World to a 2014 spot on Time's List of the 100 Most Influential People in the World. She started out as a character actress in films such as 2001's Save the Last Dance, 2004's Ray, and 2006's The Last King of Scotland. But she exploded to stardom in 2012 as the lead of ABC's Shonda Rhimes created and showrun drama series Scandal, playing Olivia Pope, a fixer modeled after real-life crisis manager Judy Smith, who works very closely, shall we say, with the President of the United States. With that role, she became the first black female lead of a primetime network series in 37 years, since Get Christy Love, which starred Teresa Graves, went off the air in 1975. And her work on the show brought her 2013 and 2014 Emmy nominations and a 2014 Golden Globe nomination for Best Actress in a Drama Series, as well as a whole new profile in the business. Indeed, in 2016, she established her own production company, Simpson Street, which, among other things, produced three major projects in which she has also starred. The 2016 HBO TV movie Confirmation, which brought her acting and producing Emmy noms and an acting Golden Globe nom. The 2019 Netflix TV movie adaptation of a Broadway show in which she had also starred, American Son. And the 2020 Hulu limited series literary adaptation, Little Fires Everywhere. I'm talking, of course, about Kerry Washington. Over the course of our conversation, the 43-year-old and I discussed the evolution of her attitude about pursuing acting, how a potentially career-changing offer from Rhymes also came with a sense of burden, what, following the success of Scandal, she made of what NBC News has described as the Kerry Washington effect, what has been the great personal significance of the two projects for which she is in the running for 2020 Emmys, American Sun and Little Fires Everywhere, plus much more. Please note that this was recorded on May 15th, the day before we received the shocking news of the sudden death of 54-year-old Lynn Shelton, an executive producer on and a director of four of the eight episodes of Little Fires Everywhere. And so, with thanks to Carrie, and without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Before we dive into 
this is your life uh, like this normally is. I just have to ask, of course, uh, how are you doing and where are you doing it? You know, with the um, with the appropriate preamble of like we're super blessed that we're all healthy um, and well. I have some family members who have been sick, but who are all at this point recovered and well. So, um, yeah, you know, we're just all adjusting to this to every day's new normal and, um, and trying to stay really present, you know? Well, uh, glad everybody's doing better. And I guess, um, you know, we usually begin on this podcast just at the very beginning, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Oh, it really is. Oh, we're is gonna, oh, oh it really is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Wait till you see. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Let me settle into this. <laughs> So I was born in New York City. I grew up in the Bronx. And my mom is a retired professor of education. She was an educator for decades and decades. She taught kids in schools and then became the teacher of teachers. And my dad is a somewhat retired, although he still likes to the art of a, of a deal every now and again. But he's a, a real estate broker. Nice. And uh, just reading some of your past interviews and stuff to prep for this, I thought it was very interesting the way you described your childhood as being very different from 7 a.m. versus 7 p.m. And I wonder if you can share sort of what you meant by that. These were interviews from a few years ago, but it sounds like maybe your your first um, almost taste of acting in a sense, or at least inhabiting a different different parts, was that dichotomy between home and school. Yeah. I mean, when I was 12, I guess, I started commuting from our apartment in the Bronx to a very prestigious all-girls private school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, Spence. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I guess coming from where I came from, we were rich because we had two cars and we had a cabin in the Catskills and we had a dishwasher and a microwave before anybody else in the building. And then I was exposed to a phenomenal culture shock of what wealth really looks like and um, levels of affluence that I didn't know existed. And also just, it was a different cultural landscape. You know, people for the most part, looked different and walked different and dressed differently. And, um, and I started having to figure out the kind of lifelong journey I've had of how to belong and be comfortable in any environment while also doing this dance of authenticity and figuring out how much of me is, is an unmovable me and, and what isn't. Oh, so interesting. And uh, and in terms of literally acting, entering the picture, I, I guess it was it was originally a nudge from your mom. Not necessarily. Right. It wasn't self-starting uh, at the beginning. <laughs> no, I think, you know, I joke that I have a very stoic mom. She's really elegant and she's a beautiful speaker with an impeccable mind. And, um, but big feelings are not her, <laughs> her currency. And so it was like, all of a sudden she got 
this kid, this baby who was like a walking id. I just, I've always been a person with really big feelings. <laughs> and um, luckily, you know, I had an educator mom who rather than just shut me down and make me feel like there was nowhere for me to be that, one of the many extracurricular activities that she enrolled me in was the children's theater company in the Bronx. So I learned early on that there there was this place where you could be, it wasn't just allowed, you could be celebrated for having feelings publicly, for like having exuberant joy and monumental sorrow, that these things were not like just emotions that were too big for my mother, but they, but there was a place for them. And so how does it evolve then from that to apparently by the time you're only in, I think, junior high school, you have an agent. So what was the, if you can connect the dots. <laughs> <laughs> that was an absolute, like, it's just one of those, but for the grace of God stories where you just look back. I, I just finished reading Alicia Key's memoir, More Myself. It's so tremendous. It's beautiful. And she talks about how like this neighbor was like, I have a piano that I'm, that I want to get rid of. And like, had that neighbor not gotten rid of that piano by putting it in Alicia's apartment. Like, where would we all be right now? You know, like, so I, for me, it was a similar story in that the, the secretary to the head of middle school at Spence mm -hmm. was best friends. Her name was Holly Shank. And she was best friends with Ellen Lewis, who was one of the top casting directors in Hollywood history. And Ellen Lewis was doing a wide net search for the character in Interviews with a Vampire um, that Tandy Newton wound up playing. So there was this wide net of like, we need young women of color. We need them to come in. And so she said, you should go and meet my friend Ellen. Cause I was doing like school plays. A lot of them, right? I, I, th I read one of one of your co-stars was Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> yes, I d yes, we did. There was a production when I was in middle school and Gwyneth was in high school. There was a production of Midsummer Night's Dream and the middle schoolers were allowed to audition for fairies. Um, she was Queen Titania, of course. <laughs> and so I auditioned for a fairy. And so that that is my one co-starring <laughs> role with Gwyneth Paltrow. So yeah, so I was doing that kind of stuff. So yeah. I went to meet with Ellen and, you know, it was just this weird kismet. Like I, I walked into this room and she said, you're too young for this role, but you are really talented and you should have an agent. And I was like, what's an agent? And, um, <laughs> and she called up agencies and made appointments for me to meet and go in. And I went and then I had an agent and that was, that was it. <laughs> like I just really fell into that kind of access, which is, I know such it's, it's so unheard of and, and not the average story. Well, you've talked about just your own, Maybe, I don't know if this is the right way to characterize it, but sort of reluctance to embrace the idea that you wanted to be an actor because they seem to be these people that are, you know, primarily on the covers of magazines and stuff like that. And that's not how you saw yourself. But I thought it was interesting that an early moment you've talked about where you maybe reconsidered a little bit. Was there a performance of Ooh. Hamlet that your mom saw that you sort of had an epiphany? Yeah, listen, I always really loved 
acting. I, and I, and that moment, I was doing this performance of Hamlet. I was playing Ophelia. And again, I talked about my mom, who's kind of this very um, stoic and measured. She's, she's a woman of measured emotions, very loving, but measured emotions, measured expression of emotions. But anyway, she was watching the performance and I had my big Ophelia mad scene exit side stage through the audience. And my mom was volunteering that night you know, handing out programs or doing whatever amazing, dutiful, you know, parent-teacher association situation she was in. And um, and when I looked at her, she was crying. And I, I mean, I can count on one hand the number of times I've seen my mother cry. And I, I kind of, like something struck me because I realized that in that moment she had thought I was somebody else. Like she bought into this story and that felt really powerful to me. And I remember thinking like, oh, it, it sparked, I think, my curiosity about what this was and what kind of power it could have over people. And um, yeah, so, but I, but I did, I really, I mean, the moment when I really tried, thought to pursue a career was when I found out about unions, you know, because I come from a working class family and middle working class and, and so unions to me equaled workers. And if there were unions for actors, that meant that, that like you didn't have to be on the cover of a magazine to make a living as an actor, that you could maybe just like do plays that you love and try to book a couple national commercials and live a, a wonderful, fulfilled life that way. And so that's kind of what gave me the courage to pursue it professionally because I thought, oh, well, I, I could do that. I guess I have to ask then, what did you get your SAG card for? I got my SAG card for um, much earlier, actually. I just didn't know that I had a SAG card. Like, <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't know what a SAG card meant. But I got my SAG card either in junior high school or maybe freshman year of high school for an, an ABC, ironically, an ABC after school special um, <laughs> called, I think, My Special Angel, if I'm right. I, uh, I just, yeah, I, I think that's right. I'm looking at my notes here, but so there was, there were these little, what must've felt very big at the time, professional gigs and stuff and the school plays, but now it comes time. You've got to go off to college and you end up with a, as I understand it, it's a scholarship for theater, for acting to GW. When you're going off there to do that, what was the goal for after school? What was the what was the thought of what this would lead to at that point? Was it theater or were you always hoping there would be screen as well? Or what was the outlook? No, even when I, I mean, this realization about unions and what they meant, that happened about halfway through college. I did a really? summer conservatory program between my sophomore and junior year at college. And I did it in New York at Michael Howard Studios. And I, I took scene study classes and movement classes, but we also had this class called... Um, acting as a business or the business of acting, something like that. And, and that's when we learned kind of about unions. And I was like, oh, I'm already in one of those. And I was like, <laughs> oh, what does that mean? Because my mom had just maintained my dues during college just in case, which was super interesting to me. So when I went to college, it was not with the goal of, of being an actor. I, I mean, I had been accepted to a few conservatory programs, Carnegie Mellon and NYU, I think. And I, I felt really strongly that I didn't want to go to a conservatory because I needed to have like a well-rounded liberal arts education because I didn't want to be an actor. I wanted to have options. And I thought about teaching. I thought about being a lawyer. Um, I thought about being a sociologist. There were lots of 
kind of all social science or um, civic engagement based interests for me. So now what sort of flipped the switch aside from that business class at, at GW, because it sounds. It was at Michael Howard studios. It was yeah. that that mm-hmm. was okay. Oh no, that's what I'm just saying where it was. Oh, okay. What flipped the switch of like, I'm going to give this a go. Yeah. It was that class and kind of realizing that there was a way to do this where I didn't have to want to be famous. I could just want to be an actor. That, that realization really freed me in a lot of ways. And so my commitment to myself was that I would, I would just try it for a year, that after college I was going to give myself one year to try to become a working actor. And, um, and if it didn't work out, then I would figure out whether it was, you know, GMATs or LSATs, like there was going to be some kind of postgraduate something. Well, so even if stardom was not the the kind of primary goal there, which sounds like a healthy way to get into this business, if you're going to get into it, it does sound from, I, I went back and read what must have been the first interview you probably ever did with Oprah. I think this was around the time of of Ray, maybe. And you were saying that your time at GW and I guess immediately afterwards, there was sort of this inner turmoil of trying to figure out what an actor is supposed to look like, that am I too heavy or all this different stuff about just the physicality of an actor. And you told this amazing story about, I guess it was on the set of your first film, first feature, our song, which ended up with a Spirit Award, this great little indie, that there was something, I guess, an interaction with the director that made you sort of just calm down a little bit about that. Wow, I don't remember any of no. this. <laughs> um, well, then it maybe it's uh, it wasn't that important. What I remember about that article and kind of that moment was, and I just I remember this really specifically. There was we lived in a section of the Bronx that was kind of just across the Whitestone Bridge from LaGuardia Airport. And so there were a lot of planes. We were in the pathway of a lot of planes. And I feel like I spent a lot of my childhood, like, wanting to be on those planes and, like, you know, wanting to go out and see the world and be somebody else, somewhere else, doing other things other than what I was doing. And there was a day on set when we were filming our song, we were stealing shots on the subway out in Rockaway. So we were close to Kennedy airport. And we had to pause filming on the subway because a plane flew overhead. And I remember thinking like, I don't want to be anywhere, but where I am right now. Like, this is the only place I want to be is doing this right now, being me doing this. And I think for somebody who spent a lot of my life feeling like I, I, one of the draws to acting for me was that it, I almost felt more comfortable being other people than I felt being myself. It was a real, it was a, a revelation for me to feel like I'm, I'm really happy being me in this moment. Mm. So just a year after that, you're in a studio movie for the first time, which must be a whole whole different experience. Oh my God. On right. our song, our transpo department was like three Metro cards. And <laughs> my mom would sometimes drive myself and the actresses home from set. That was our transpo department. Um, <laughs> so it was t- when I got to, to Chicago to shoot Save the Last Dance, everything. I mean, I, it was so different. I, re- I remember watching entire movies in my trailer. Like who knew what a trailer was? I would watch entire movies in my trailer during a lighting setup. Like <laughs> It was crazy. It was crazy. 
And that, I guess, was for a lot of people their first time seeing you in action. And then, you know, over the next few years, it's just it's interesting to look at the the kind of, again, what must at the time have felt like huge moments you were saying about the next year when you did Bad Company, this smaller part with Chris Rock film, I guess it was the first time you could you were making enough money annually to qualify for SAG health insurance, you were saying. And then She Hate Me, suddenly you're working with Spike Lee in a in a leading role. And then all of us, I mean, I, I guess by 2000, you know, I'm glossing over what probably it may have chronologically involved a, a little overlap with, with Ray, which I'm obviously going to ask you about. But next thing you're in the same year, I think, cast opposite Brad and Angelina for Mr. and Mrs. Smith and in a Marvel movie, superhero movie, Fantastic Four. I mean, did it feel in that moment like it was all happening in a way that, you know, now in hindsight, those were those were small steps, but it must have felt pretty big at that time. It did. I knew that I was like working, right? Like I knew like I'm in the game. I am in the game. But I always felt like I was in the hustle of the game. I never felt like you know, I, I never felt like I had a guaranteed place off the bench. So I was like excited to be on the team, excited to be in the game, but I felt vulnerable and like I didn't have a lot of agency or, or power, but I knew that I was having incredible opportunity and working with the best of the best of the best. I mean, to have worked with Chris Rock two times, Jamie two times, Forrest Whitaker, you know, I've just been Don Cheadle. I've, I've been really, really, really blessed in my career. Well, the the first Jamie Foxx and the and the Forrest Whitaker, we obviously, I guess these are now the highest profile ones up to that point that we've got to really talk about because, and by the way, there's, there's, I know I'm not the first to observe this, but there's something, uh, you should get some kind of special award when you're too screen husbands both walk off with Oscars in a period of three years. Um, I know. I had the same joke, actually, then, because most of my scenes in Django were with Christoph Waltz, and he won the Oscar, too. And I was like, oh, man, you won an Oscar. You better hire me to do your scenes with you. Um, But I guess to start with Ray, with Jamie Foxx, obviously, again, it's 2004. First time, as far as I can tell, playing a real person, not to mention a living person, this woman who you described as the Jackie O of the black community, just the, in terms of the way she carried herself, Ray Charles' wife, Della. Is that a different sort of responsibility? Did that feel like a different thing than you'd had to deal with up to that point? You know, um, people forget that we shot Ray independently. That film sold to Universal, but we shot that as an indie. And I had done a lot of indie work at that time. And I knew that the script was special and it was Taylor Hackford, for God's sake. And, (laughs) you know, it was definitely an elevated indie, but it still was like, is anybody going to see this? (laughs) Like, is anybody going to buy this? Um, (laughs) So the, the sort of pressure of like, oh, we're making an Oscar caliber movie, that wasn't quite there for me. I think also I was so green. I didn't yet understand. It was, it was Ray that really taught me about what the circus of awards campaigns and pursuing (laughs) that glory all looks like. Um, and in, in many ways it was really like the perverse political nature of it was hard for me to process and, and was a real turnoff. 
Um, I, she says on awards chatter. Um, so, um, and it was a lot tamer back in 2004 than it is in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. But so I really, um, I, I think we, we all made that film cause we love, we knew it was special. We knew Ray was special. He was alive when we were making the film. He was able to see a version of the film before he passed that he approved of and gave us his blessing. So the, but there was a lot of pressure for me around playing a real person. I've done it many times in my career, actually played characters who were either based on or inspired by real people. And, and I, that experience taught me that it can be both a responsibility, but also a real gift because you have very rich source material to jump off of. And I'm like, I'm like a research nerd when it comes to developing character. I just really like to do deep dives on character. So having a real person is like, you know, having a library, walking library that you can work out from. And in that case, it was somebody who hadn't really opened up to anyone else. So it was um, interesting. But Last King of Scotland if uh, people haven't seen it yet, is not set in Scotland. <laughs> it's uh, set in Africa. Uh, and that was your first time to to the continent? Yeah. I, I'm, it was, we were filmed the whole film in Uganda, except for the parts, I think, early on he's in Scotland in the movie. Yeah. But we shot, my role particularly, shot all in Uganda. I'd never been to the continent. It was life-changing in every way. And I loved that project, you know, getting to work with Forrest, but also James McAvoy and David Oyelowo. Like it was just a really special group of actors with a wonderful director. So that was a, a really, a really special project. And it was actually the first time in my career, I believe that I was offered a role. So that was a big change for me to be offered a role. And then I was terrified because I was like, you guys don't know if I can do this accent or not. I don't know if I can do this accent or not. Um, but Forrest and I agreed to work with the same accent coach initially so that we would at least both have the same approach to constructing the accent so that there would be con some consistency. And then when I was there, I mean, I, I spoke almost exclusively in the accent when I was there. I just loved it. I love doing accent work and just spending time with people and listening and trying to find the rhythm of how a people speak. Well, I found a quote here from the director, just to your point about offering you the part. I guess he said it was not a question after he saw Ray. He felt there was something regal about the the way you played that character that just made him think it was. So I, I'm, I don't know if he had said that directly to you, but that was an interesting one to come across. And well, Kevin's Kevin's an extraordinary filmmaker. Um, I, it was really fun because that was his first narrative feature. And it was interesting because he didn't have a lot of language at that time for how to work with actors. But what's great about documentary filmmakers is like they know what truth looks like on camera. So he would come up and say like, and it just doesn't feel real. And I was like, oh, <laughs> It wasn't the most loving, nurturing way to talk to actors, but that's okay. It was like, oh, but I trust his eye. And that means more to me than like coddling me into some kind of performance. It was really nice to to know that he was looking for truth and that he, he didn't want to stop till we got it, you know? So the, the film career is obviously gaining some serious momentum between those projects then uh, Miracle St. Anna for Spike again, Mother and Child, all in a, for Color Girls, all within a short period of time, plus the first Broadway appearance in 2009 for 
uh, in race, David Mamet play. But at that time, at that time, I wanted to quit acting. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to come. I didn't I couldn't believe that when I re- you were saying after Ray, after Last King. Why was that? Part of it was what I talked about, like when I started to see how political this stuff was and I started, it's funny that I say like a class that was about the business of acting is part of what gave me the courage to pursue acting. But as I learned more about the business of acting, I was like, I don't really know if I want to do this. Were there specific incidents that you remember that were that sort of hit home? There were. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, some of them I don't I don't know if I'm privy to talk about, but I'd had a couple of experiences where I really felt like both my gender and my race, I could really feel that they were limited factors in the kind of narratives that I was going to be able to tell or the kind of space that I was going to get to take up as an artist. And that was really hard. It was really hard for me to um just to kind of it, I mean, we listen, we all like as women, as people of color, it's it's not shocking when we hit up against those ceilings. But I think for me, art is this pure thing. And storytelling is to me, it was not about politics and decision makers. It's supposed to be about, you know, stepping into the shoes of other people and having access to unheard stories and um building bridges between our human experiences and so you're you're talking about stuff that was happening in sort of the executive suite or in the award stuff again or was it kind was of it, all of the above i think they're yeah. they're related um but I, I started realizing like who gets to make the decisions and who has the power and being told i couldn't do things because i had to lose weight or because i was too dark or because i was not pretty enough or because they don't want to go black on that one or they're not seeing ethnic actresses or I had a member of my representative team say like you're just too smart sometimes in the room like they don't they don't want to hear all that stuff and I was like you know it's just those kind of I guess when I started getting the message that there wasn't space for my authentic selfhood my my authentic personhood that it it I started feeling like maybe I need to find uh, an occupation where there's room for me to be me and not have to twist myself in a pretzel to belong. And at that point, what would that have been if you if you had pulled the trigger? Thankfully, you didn't. But if you had left at that point, what would you have done? There's been lots of different things. I mean, at that time earlier, right before I got Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I actually lost a couple thousand dollars because I had just enrolled in a really um, prestigious and difficult to get into yoga teacher training program in New York because I was done acting at that point too. And then my agent called me and was like, Doug Lyman really wants to meet with you for this role in a movie with at that time, Nicole Kidman and Brad Pitt. And I was like, all right. And then I got this part and was like, well, I guess I'm going to not go to yoga. Man, I hope they'll hold my place and I can go to the yoga teacher training next year. Yeah. Never happened. So Jiva Mukti Yoga in New York owes me a couple grand for sure. <laughs> but I, um, I think at that time in New York coming out of race and, um, that that time period, it probably would was going to be teaching, not teaching yoga, but teaching like elementary <laughs> education. And I wonder if any of this has to do with the fact, you know, in terms of things that would have been demoralizing. There were two times prior to scandal from things I've read where you had 
been cast in pilots that were ordered to series. But I was fired. Yeah, both what the times. Hell? What's that about? <laughs> <laughs> both times. Yeah, you know, and, and it's funny because now as a producer, like now on the other side of the table, I get it. Like not everybody's right for everything. And you can't now sitting on the other side of the table and watching casting tapes for whatever I'm casting, whether it's a play or a movie or, you know, now, now I understand. But at the time it was hard for me to hear that and not take it personally. Like, no, the show's going, everybody loves the show. Everybody loves all the actors except for you. Like you got to go. And do you think that that was race related based on some of the things that you were saying? No, those, no, the characters were black. <laughs> it just was me. I mean, one of them, one of them, there was a feeling from the network and from, I don't know if the director agreed, but there was a feeling from the network in particular that my character need to be played with, from a, with a more urban flavor. So they felt that I wasn't playing her black enough, that they wanted her to kind of sound more black and feel more urban. And I felt that that's not who this character was. That wasn't something I was unwilling to do. I'd played lots of characters like that. If you look at our song, you look at Save the Last Dance. Like I don't have, I'm not averse. You know, I'm from the Bronx. That's not an issue for me, but I felt like that's not who this woman was. And it was, I mean, I listen to it now and I'm like, oh my gosh, like who did I think I was in a way? But it, it felt like like real creative choice. And and I think really I felt like they were asking me to play a stereotype um, as opposed to a human being. That was how it felt to me at the time. And so is that very that very distinction between what they were asking you for that and what they were asking with when you get this pilot for, for Scandal, the sense that even though it's going to require stepping aside from a film career that's potentially stepping away from a film career for seven years, even though you've got some momentum going, it's not, you're not going to be able to do that much on that end of things. It was worth the gamble of doing the pilot, potentially having it picked up because primarily it was an, an empowered character or because it was Shonda Rhimes or what was the main draw? I mean, Shonda Rhimes is where the story starts and ends, yeah. right? Like Shonda Rhimes is, she is like so there was reason to even read it because it was Shonda but I hadn't done a whole lot of television I had done an arc on Boston Legal but I, I wasn't one of these actors who kind of like did a pilot every year like I I hadn't done a lot of TV so I don't think I really thought a lot about whether or not it was gonna go I just, when I read that script, like every once in a while in my career, and it's usually right around when I'm about to leave and like throw in the hat <laughs> and be like, I'm done. Every once in a while, I read a script and I have this, I, I'm going to sound woo-woo, so I'm, I apologize, but I have this feeling, I'm, I don't apologize, but for people who don't get it, sorry. <laughs> um, I have this feeling in me like, like the character is already inside me. I had it when I read Ray. I had it when I read Save the Last Dance. I had it when I read Our Song. I had it when I read Scandal. It was like, I didn't have to think about how to say the lines. The character was already living in me and I knew how every line was supposed to sound and feel instinctively, intuitively, immediately. And that happened for me with Scandal. And I just felt like, I mean, there was a point, I, t I tell this story, and this is not hyperbole, like this is not, 
a metaphor. Like I had a moment where I threw the script across the room because I was like, how does she know? Like <laughs> she knows me. Like this was written for me. Like this is my stuff that's in here. This is my world. Like at the time I was working for the real white house, I was not sleeping with the president, but I, um, but I, it was like, it, 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 I, this was for me. Like this was absolutely for me. The problem was they were like, 500 other actresses that felt the same way. Well, I was going to say, I mean, she was just about the hottest showrunner you could be coming with, with Grey's Anatomy. And I think at that point, and I think private practice, um, and you, you've said she basically was open to a wide range of ages. So everybody, every black actress, cause it was written to be a, a black character was coming in. And then I gather even still, even, even when it's written as a black character, somebody of course has to suggest Connie Britton. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was the studio's initial reaction was like, oh, you know, when like when they heard the pitch, I think right. I'm not exactly sure. And they were like, oh, Connie Britton would be great. For this. And Shonda was like, you yeah, know, she's black. <laughs> Silence, you know. Now, did you already know Shonda or anyone else involved with this pilot before you got it? You know, weirdly, and I say weirdly because a lot of times you you know other black folks in Hollywood just by being black and in Hollywood. Um, but I'd never met Shonda. I'd never met her at like any of the parties or the luncheons or the like secret black women gatherings that do happen. <laughs> so my first meeting with her, I remember coming off the elevator and I had enormous respect for her. I was a huge fan. I, I hadn't been a Grey's Anatomy fan from the very beginning, but interestingly, when I was doing race on Broadway, I would have a hard time unwinding from the play. And I started watching Grey's Anatomy at night after the play Interesting. and then going back. I just, and, and so, I, but I had huge respect for her, but I walked, I stepped off the elevator and across the wall was a huge sign that said Shonda land. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know if this is going to go well. <laughs> like, I don't that was this was at her production company or she yeah this was yeah. at her production company i was gonna say i hope there wasn't at home yeah no it was it was at her company which that's the name of her that's company it's yeah. shauna land you know right and i was like i yeah i don't know if i'm ready to like <laughs> give up my citizenship to join right. a whole new land it just felt like you know because again i wasn't a person who was kind of stepping into fame in that way and so that just felt like extraordinary empowered. And I don't know, it just made me feel like, wow, okay, she's got to land. Um, <laughs> and then I met her and, um, and we just fell in love. I mean, in the meeting, I was like, God, I love this woman. I would love to work with her. I would love to work for her. I love, I was already in love with the script. And she's the one who said to me, you know, if this goes well, we could be like married for seven years. And <laughs> in my head, I was like, well, that's not happening. And I don't know if it was because I just, I didn't believe it was going to go or I don't know, but I just, maybe it's the Aquarius in me that I'm like commitment averse. I just was like, yeah, it's fine. Like I want to make this pilot. Like that's what I knew. I knew that like, this was an extraordinary role for any woman, but in particularly for a black woman. And I wanted to make this pilot and make it great. And whatever happens from there is kind of not my business. Well, part of the reason why you probably had a hard time believing it was real was because for 37 years prior to that, there had not been a network primetime show with a black lead. And I know that was heavily stated around the time. And I, I wonder if that on top of what, you know, the show gets picked up and on top of the pressure of just having to carry a, a network show, 
was that something that felt like it was a, a bit of a burden almost that if you don't make it, if you, if this show doesn't last, there may not be another for 37 years. Yeah. You know, something I think about and is that I was 34, 35. So what, when this was all going down. So what that meant was that in my lifetime, I hadn't seen it. I'd seen it on cable. I've, I'd seen the premium networks take risks, you know, Jada Pinkett had done it. And, but in my lifetime, I'd never seen it on network television. So I, I think you're right. There was sort of a sense of like, let's not worry about what those people, the decisions those people make, like, let's just make a great pilot. And there was, I, I don't want to call it a burden because it was such a privilege and opportunity and gift and blessing. But I did know, I guess there was a pressure. Like to, to me, I knew that if Scandal didn't work, there was the potential that it would be another 30 to 40 years before somebody took a chance on, chance in quotes, on giving a woman of color the opportunity to be the lead of her own show. So I felt like I needed to make it work, not just for me and a sense of like, you know, strong work ethic and a drive toward excellence, but also because I didn't want to blow this opportunity. You know, when they let one of us in the door, you have to do it right or they're not going to let anybody else through the door. Well, and I'm yeah. really proud that by the time we were going off the air, you know, Viola Davis not only had her own show, but had won the first Emmy yes. for a black woman on network television and Priyanka Chopra had her own show and Empire was a huge hit. And like there yeah. were black women leading shows all over the place. Alfred Ward, Octavia, mm -hmm. Taraji, Halle Berry. Mm -hmm. And it was being described in some of the media coverage as the Kerry Washington effect. That must have felt kind of nice that because Scandal did quickly find a following and I guess disproved this absurdity that, oh, I, I wonder if this this can even work with a black actress. Meanwhile, there's obviously a lot of a lot of appetite for that. But did that was that sort of uh, special to see that in a short period of time it had a real effect? You know, what it made me feel really was gratitude that Shonda had built up the kind of power in Hollywood that she could call the shots and say the character's black and the character would be black. And it made me grateful to audiences because the truth is like I could have been doing the performance of a lifetime. I could have been doing the best work of my life, but if nobody tunes in to watch, right. it doesn't matter. You know, how many shows have we lost that are like beautiful, brilliant, exquisitely performed shows? But if the numbers aren't there, we don't get to enjoy them. So I was grateful to audiences because audiences tuning in, that sent the message to networks that this was a viable business and that people want to see heroes that look like them or anti-heroes, as Olivia Pope was often, <laughs> heroes that look like them or heroes that don't look like them, right? That there's room for that level of diversity and inclusivity. And you were savvy about it, too, because I think something that now a lot of people do, you, I believe, were the first to do in terms of making sure people were at least aware of the show so they could give it a chance. This live tweeting started, I think, with Scandal, right? During a show. Yeah. So Allison Peters, who was one of my closest friends from childhood, we grew up together. We went to Spence together. We've known each other since we were 11 and 12. She is a social media phenom genius. She had been working at Viacom and she started her own company doing social media. And a few years before Scandal had gotten me very reluctantly onto Twitter <laughs> um, which was really at the time, I guess, Facebook, I, I don't even remember. She, she would have to tell you, but, um, 
she had gotten me onto social media and it was her idea, you know, to, to do live tweeting and we did it and we did it. I think one of the reasons that it worked is because we were so passionate about our show. Like our cast genuinely loved each other and we genuinely loved our show. And that showed online. Allison said to me, like the whole cast should probably live tweet. And I didn't want to be like a bossy actor, lead actor on a show kind of person. So (laughs) I emailed Shonda and said, like, can you ask the cast to all go on social media? And Shonda was on Twitter and she already had a sense of kind of how an online life through the, um, through the, what are they called? Like the, um, Oh, hashtags and stuff or no, like she, before Twitter, even they were doing stuff on like Tumblr kind of stuff on on Grey's Anatomy, like online summaries. She just understood that this alternate media landscape could enhance traditional media. Um, so she was game and the whole cast got on board and yeah, I mean, to this day, Twitter, you know, Twitter's always tweeting like Allison Peters, inventor of live tweeting. Like it's, <laughs> it is, it's, it's magic. And, and I'm forever grateful for that. I guess I, I should also ask about somebody else who I think was instrumental in, in scandal kind of being, being a part of the conversation for as long as it was. Channing Dungy ran ABC, I think during most of the run was that someone who you dealt with a lot or or it was yeah I love Channing and Channing kind of grew up with Scandal right like she was the executive on Scandal when we were shooting our pilot and by the time we were leaving she was the head of the network so it was really fun to kind of grow up together and I think the relationship between she and Shonda was um, fundamental I think to the life of the show I, I wouldn't be able to tell you the insides of how that always worked, but. So the two, I would imagine, challenges that came with with that, those years, I think seven seasons of doing that. Two it, challenges? Just two? No, okay. I'm sure there's a hundred. <laughs> but these are the, <laughs> the two that I will highlight. You pretty quickly became a lot more famous than you had ever been. How did you handle that? <laughs> I handled it like Olivia Pope. Um, it's handled. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, um, right. You know, it's funny because before Scandal, I had a pretty normal life. Like I, I, my anonymity hadn't really been all that impacted, weirdly enough, because I had been part of really big movies. But I think because I am at heart a character actor, and so people didn't connect that the girl from Last Game of Scotland was the same girl from Save the Last Dance, was the same girl from Ray. Like it, I kind of enjoy disappearing and transforming into these characters. So I I had the benefit of of like starting to have things like cosmetic and jewelry campaigns because my career was going well, but I could still go to the grocery store and and not have it really be a big deal. And Scandal changed that because of the nature of television, I think, because you're in people's homes. You know, now, I I think, I mean, now, particularly now in the middle of the pandemic, everything is in your home. Now everything is in the palm of your hand. But back then, there was even, there was more of a distinction between like, you get up, you get dressed, you pay money, you sit in a theater, you see this thing that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's done and you go home. TV is like, I come into your house once a week indefinitely. Like how many people in your life do you have a 
open-ended weekly intimate time with. I mean, you know, a lot of people when they're, when they were watching these weekly shows, appointment television, maybe the only other person they were talking to in that way was a therapist or a mm-hmm. spouse, you know? So it, it was very intimate and, um, that sort of dissolved boundaries for people, not for me, but for other people. But I mean, is it something that you can just adjust too quickly or is that, I mean, that to me would seem to be a pretty challenging thing to just, while you're busy doing 22 episodes a season, which itself is massive, which is exacerbated by the amount of dialogue that you guys had to do because it was delivered so fast. I mean, just the volume of stuff you're dealing with professionally at the same time, I would think it could get overwhelming. It was such a whirlwind. And I knew, I knew how lucky I was. Like I knew how blessed I was. So I've always been really careful to not complain about that stuff because it has its challenges. And I've, I've had to process it with a lot of support from friends and loved ones and coworkers and therapists. And, um, but it's the cost of this really extraordinary life that I've had. And it's worth the trade-off in hindsight. Nobody can say anything but hindsight because you don't, don't know what it is till you sign up for it until you have it, but you feel it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I guess the second of the two challenges was going to be just about the volume. So we wove that in, uh, the volume of stuff you had to do. And in terms of these monologues, I'm going to just do a quick follow-up, which is, do you have a personal favorite? I have a lot of people that have weighed in about this and they, uh, (laughs) between, um, Little Bitch Baby, I'm the Boss. Little Bitch Baby was in there. (laughs) If You Want Me, Earn Me, all of the classics, which, uh, which gets your vote? And how did you learn these? It's so much, so much stuff. I think my favorite monologue will always be that monologue from the pilot where I sit down with our intern and I say, you know, pack up your bags and get a good job in a small city like (laughs) that, because that was my audition monologue. Mm -hmm. And every time I hear it, I get a little like weepy and teary because it really was the birth of that character was that monologue like that. And right after that is the first time she says it's handled like that that was when we really got to meet who Olivia Pope is and what she's capable of, that when she eviscerates this poor young woman, <laughs> having no idea at that point that the girl was telling the truth. So anyway, I think that will always be my favorite and the one that that has the sort of most solid place in my heart. But how I memorized them, I don't know. I mean, it really was <laughs> insane. And sometimes we would get rewrites hours before, but you never complain because the rewrites always, the rewrites just meant that the writers wanted to make it better and it always was better. And so you were like, well, I was spinning silver now I'm spinning gold. Like, let's do it. Let's just make it happen. I would say probably the hardest time was when I was pregnant because it really is true. Like that pregnancy brain can be a thing. It was for me. I don't know if it is for everybody, but it took me twice as long to memorize things. Like I knew I had it timed out like, okay, I have a three page monologue. That's going to take me about this much time. When I was pregnant, it was double the time. But what was interesting was that in my pregnancy, I also had the capacity to spend more time. Like I had more kind of conviction and endurance in that time in my kind of mama bear version that was, that was unfolding. So it was harder, but I also was up to the task. Yeah. 
All right. So in the home stretch, I want to obviously talk about these other projects that people have gotten to see you in since they realized who Kerry Washington is, put it together. During the run of Scandal, there was Django, which I thought it was so interesting. You basically said the appeal to you of what is in a way a, a damsel in distress was that we hadn't really seen a, a black male get to save a damsel in distress before. There wasn't an example of that, aside from it being a Tarantino project and all of that. And then the other one during the run was Confirmation. And you played someone who I have a, a whole lot of respect for since I got to know her at my alma mater, Brandeis, where she's a professor, Anita Hill. Just um, those two that you did during the run, and then we'll finish up after that. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, the scandal years were such a whirlwind because it was kind of like do a season. It was do a season, do a movie, do a season, get married, do a season, <laughs> do a movie, do a season, have a baby, do a season. It was just like it, crazy oh busy um, yeah. and such a like a life changing window of my life. I would say the the draw for me for playing the damsel in distress was working with Tarantino, working with Jamie again, but also telling there have been lots of black love stories. What there hadn't been for me was an efficient, effective explore, exploration of the idea that at a time when it was illegal for black people to love each other, when marriage between two black human beings was against the law in the United States, that to defy that law and fight for your beloved, that that's some heroic shit. And, and that's what I loved about the movie, that it wasn't just about black love, but that it was, at, it was about reaching for black love at a time when that was a crime and doing it anyway. It felt like the most romantic civil disobedience. You know, it was, it was just, I, I just felt like that was massively important. And uh, confirmation was the Emmy nomination. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, it was my third Emmy yes. nomination, yes. Um, and I, I, it meant a lot to me. Well, you playing, produced it too, right? I did. It was the beginning. It was the birth of my production company, Simpson yeah. Street, and I really, it was such a privilege to play her and to figure out how to tell that story and bring her heroic journey to the eyes and hearts of new generations or people who were around but didn't know quite the depth of her story. So the two projects that are very much in the ether at the moment are American Sun and Little Fires Everywhere. And I think it's interesting. I don't know if this was deliberate or it's just coincidental, but both characters who you play are in a way, it seems, the complete opposite of Olivia Pope. With American Sun, you've said that that was literally the the appeal there. And then with, with Mia in Little Fires Everywhere, this is somebody who, rather than coming in and taking control of the room and giving a grand speech and whatever, basically says very little and holds it very close to the vest. So I guess let's start, if we can, with American Sun, which I was lucky to see not only on Broadway, but sitting a row behind uh, Michelle Obama, which yeah. I will not forget. Luckily, not right in front of me because she's tall and I'm not. But that was she was. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, that was a, a really a treat, and it's a, amazing just the the pacing of it all. Eighty five minutes, no intermission, like a gunfire. The whole uh, pacing of it. So, how is the idea broached, and why were you responsive to it? That after 130 performances of this, 
let's now in the most crammed possible way shoot this as a tv movie for netflix yeah i mean again i just fell in love with the material it all it often starts with the writing for me and um and I, when I read this play, I was just blown away. I felt like Christopher Demos Brown went there. He 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 like somehow made us feel like we could be privy to the inner thinking of these four very very different kinds of people, and that we could witness them talking about things that we don't normally talk about out loud. I just thought it was such an important play, and. Um, and and also working with Kenny Leon was just a dream of mine. So I was very excited to to do it. And I, I had a thought early on that there was a way to bring it to an even wider audience. Initially, I actually thought maybe this is something we could shoot because it all takes place in one room, that maybe we could shoot it as VR. But in the explorations of alternative mediums, Netflix was the perfect partner and we did we wound up shooting it in four and a half days I believe which was crazy because we were doing like 20 25 minute takes and these poor boom operators were like shaking and <laughs> but we were you know we had we were able to do that because we had rehearsed the movie for six months on Broadway and so we knew these characters inside and out and premiered at the Toronto Film Festival exactly one year after the Broadway rehearsal. That's an unbelievable turnaround. Yeah. So then we have Little Fires Everywhere, which is a different thing altogether in the sense that it's limited series on Hulu. It's adapted from a novel and you are a producer of it. How did you even, how did it cross your radar and why did you get that all in on it. What was it about it that appealed to you? Well, we produced, Simpson Street produced the play of American Sun and the film as well. Oh, um, stand corrected. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So we were, we were producers on that play and, and the film and we were producers on Little Fires as well. That came from Reese. Reese emailed me and said, like, we, we'd been friends for a while and we really liked each other and had a, a real respect for one another. And she emailed me and said, I found it. Like, I found the thing for us. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what this is going to be. <laughs> um, and then I, I read it and I agreed with her as I now do. I, as I now know, I will most times agree <laughs> with her um, and just couldn't wait to, to jump in bed together, as they say, and, and get it done. One thing I was curious about, I know in the novel, Mia's race is not specified, right? So... How often, just to get a sense of whether or not Hollywood has become any more enlightened over the course of your career, how often have you been given the opportunity to play a part where race had nothing to do with it whatsoever, it was unspecified, it was just, or maybe even if it was, if it was not the same race? Um, well, I'm, I'm taking pause because I, are you saying that that would be a sign of progress? Well, I'm saying I think that if colorblind casting, I would think is is a would be a sign, right? If the fact that somebody is not thinking about race when they cast a, a performer, right? No, I would disagree with you. I oh. think there are times when um, it is exciting, like in Fantastic Four, um, yeah. that character traditionally in the comic, in the in the graphic novels, had been blonde and blue eyed, and it was exciting to say like let's 
be more inclusive and update this material for this new world, this world we live in now. But I, I worry about the term colorblind casting because I also think it's not just about sort of throwing a face of color onto a white story. What we had to do in the process of making Little Fires was if we were going to make Mia a black woman, it meant really addressing the material in a different way and adjusting the plot, the storyline, the, the, the dialogue. So I, I think for me, real progress would be less about colorblind casting and saying, like, anybody can play that role. That's hugely important to, to sort of check our assumptions and say, does this character have to be white or have I perceived of this character as white because I'm white and that's sort of the leap I went to. So asking those kind of questions of ourselves are important, but also allowing for storytelling that, that invites different kinds of people from different backgrounds, experiences to the table with the richness and fullness of their ethnic identity is equally important. Um, so like, I don't think casting a Latin or Asian or white woman as Anita Hill is progress, right? Like that is a black woman who her blackness is, is key to her experience. I think the same can be said for other characters' whiteness. So I, I don't want to act as if, like, we need to live in a world where race doesn't matter. But it is great to live in a world where we can, when race is important, know that, that that's wonderful and just make sure that our stories are about more than just one race or more than just one kind of person. And if the identity around race is not baked in, than to be open about that. I appreciate the thoughtfulness of the answer. I will definitely, it's something to think about. And I guess I would just close by asking you to bring it kind of full circle. I was listening to your Terry Gross interview about Little Fires, and uh, it was interesting because it kind of came up that it, you realized, I think only once you were already in the middle of of making the the show, that in a way you were playing your mom in the same way Reese might be playing her mom. The show's set in the 90s. It's dealing with, you know, things that were very specific in some ways to that time period. And I guess I just wonder if you want to, if you'd be open to sharing a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think it was the chronology that initially made Reese and I go, like, we were looking at costumes for all the teen characters. And we were like, oh, I had those shoes. I had that bag. I had that, <laughs> that book bag. Like, and that, and in that moment, we were like, oh, yeah, we're, we were the teenagers, which means that we're playing our moms. And that awareness unlocked the character for me because I got to really look at the show as an opportunity to explore some of my parents' journey and what it was like to parent me and their unique challenges around economics and race and affluence and privilege, you know, I mean, very much like Pearl, I was a kid who walked with my jaw dropped through these homes thinking like, who lives like this? I'd never seen anything like it. Um, and the school experience, right? Yes. Yeah. So it really, I felt like in many, many ways, the show allowed me to honor my parents and step into their shoes you know, walk 
as them with love and gratitude and more a deeper understanding. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And, uh, quite a year. I, it's been a treat to watch both, both Thank things. You. So, Thank yeah. you so much for being so supportive. And I'm so happy that you got to see the play with Michelle that night. That's amazing. It was a it good was, night too. It was a great night. And I don't even think most other people in the audience even realized she was there because they did a great job of slipping her in and out. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was cool. Well, thanks again and, and uh, stay safe. You too. All right. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.